Anyone who watches movies knows that the dead only return if they have unfinished business. If you see someone, well, that's a bad sign, Jack. You're supposed to run away screaming. At least, that's what I would do. But fortunately, the folk in our next story, well, they're a better class of people. Snap judgment. Spencer, and I'm the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at the University of Arkansas in Monticello. When Mark and his wife Rebecca first moved to the small town of Monticello, they instantly fell in love. We saw a somewhat dilapidated but fascinating and beautiful old Victorian mansion with turrets and spires and a huge portico. There was almost a beautiful ruin. They knew they had to have that house. A month later, Mark finally got a call from the homeowner, who agreed to give them a tour of the inside. But the evening before, Mark and his wife decided to drive by the house. Their three kids were with them. We stopped in the street to sit and and, and gaze at it, as we often did. The older boy said, who's that lady in the window? And he pointed over to um, the second-story south turret window. I saw a lady sitting there in the window. It looked like she was sitting at maybe a small table or desk, reading a book or writing a letter. And my wife said, oh, that must be the owner. We drive away. The next evening, my wife and I go to the house, um, and we get to meet the owner. A very, very charming older lady. And she showed us around the house, and then she took us upstairs to the second floor, and she opened the door to the master bedroom, and the master bedroom was full of boxes and furniture, and we couldn't even get into the room. And I realized that this was the room with the window in which we had seen the woman the night before. And I said to the owner, oh, but we, we saw you in the window last night. And she said, oh, no, as you can see, you can't even get to the window. And I haven't been in this room in months. Uh, and my wife even said something about, well, no, we all saw you. <laughs> and that's when the owner said, have people in town been telling you that the house is haunted? And I said, yeah, I've heard those stories, you know, and I, I'm not taken in by such silliness. And she said, well, it is. You know, so many people had told us so many stories about the ghost in the house. They said the house was haunted by a ghost named Liddell Allen, a woman who in real life killed herself in the master bedroom back in 1948. The big question, the mystery, was why did she do it? Nobody knew. At the time of her her suicide, everybody was shocked and nobody understood it. It was a mystery from the start, and over the years, it remained a mystery. My wife and I just liked the house because it was unique and beautiful, and we thought it would be fantastic to fix it up and live there. And to Mark's surprise, the woman told them the house was theirs. She also said that she had this strange feeling that we were meant to have the house. The day that we moved into the house, uh, I was carrying boxes, 
And my little boy, who was five at the time, was standing there by the side staircase. And I remember being struck that he was standing very still and he looked kind of pale. And I, and I thought that maybe he wasn't feeling well. I say over my shoulder, well, how do you like your new house? And he doesn't answer me. And, and I say, well, well, do you? You like your new house? And he doesn't say anything. And then once I get the boxes situated, I, I turn and he's not there. He was just gone. A little while later, I found him upstairs in his room watching a Star Wars movie. And I, and I said, well, why didn't he say anything earlier when I asked him how you like the house? And he said, what are you talking about, Dad? So I haven't been downstairs since we had lunch. That was like hours ago. Didn't give it a whole lot of thought. But then there were related incidents um, within the next couple of days. Like the time Jacob, the youngest boy, got mad at his older brother Joshua for coming into his room and whispering his name in his ear over and over again. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. When Mark confronted Joshua, he said, Dad, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like, okay, what's going on? This is really weird. And I'm thinking, okay, well, we're exhausted from moving or something. But as Mark and his family settled in those first few weeks, the house's notorious reputation was impossible to ignore. We were bombarded with requests from paranormal investigators. And we said no. We said no, we don't want to get involved in that. So I'm, I'm not, you know, really taking any of this very seriously. However, one afternoon I was um, in the attic. And I was actually hanging out the attic window painting. I was perched on the ledge outside the window, risking my life in the name of historical and architectural preservation. I finally got to the point where I felt like I had done enough for the for the day, and I pulled myself into the attic. And I turned, and I noticed that my shadow was cast all the way across the attic to the opposite corner. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, I can see my, my shadow all the way over there in the south turret room. I was in the north end of, of the attic. It just seemed odd that my shadow would be cast in that manner, And then I moved, but my shadow didn't move. So when Mark got contacted again by a group of ghost hunters from Louisiana, he could no longer resist. And these ghost hunters seemed different. They seem like reasonable people. They, you know, they don't use psychics. They try to debunk things. They try to come up with explanations for what people interpret as paranormal activity. So the ghost hunters came. They set up recording equipment throughout the 6,500-square-foot house to see if they could capture any paranormal sounds. And after a long, uneventful night, they took off the following morning. They came back a few weeks later for their reveal. And the lead investigator sat with me and my wife at our dining room table, and he said, Mark, do you want to ask me the question that homeowners always want to ask? And I said, well, yeah, what, what is that? And he said, well, they always want to ask, is my house haunted? And I said, okay, is my house haunted? And he said, yes, definitely. The investigator said his team had gathered over 40 audio recordings of sounds that they identified as paranormal, what they call electronic voice phenomenon, or EVPs. Then the investigator proceeded to play them for Mark from his laptop. You hear 
It's a woman's voice. And she says, I just lied. And and then immediately after that, she says, It was justified. And and I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is really creepy. Who are these these voices? And the lead investigator said, well, that's not one of the investigators. Well, I had chills run down my spine. The investigators said that most of the recordings picked up the voice of a woman. Mark immediately thought of Liddell Allen, the woman who killed herself in the house all those years ago. And so, not long after that reveal session, I took a a $10 digital audio recorder, battery-operated, up to the attic one evening by myself. I decided I was going to have my own EVP session. And I'm sitting on an old couch up there, and I asked Liddell, why are you here? Probably not more than 10 minutes go by, and I'm already starting to get bored. And so I I play back what I've recorded, and I hear my voice, of course. And then I hear very distinctly a woman's voice. And she says, I like it here. And the voice, it, it was like she was sitting next to me on that old couch. That was the evening when I realized for certain that we weren't alone. Because I knew I hadn't faked that EVP. I, I couldn't explain that. Okay, there's a ghost in my house, and she just talked to me. Saturday morning in August of 2009, I wake up, and I immediately felt a compulsion to go to the attic. It's like a voice in my head telling me to go to the attic, that if I did, I was going to, to find something. And I didn't really understand why I felt that compulsion. And we had been in the house for over two years, and I was pretty certain that I had found everything there was to find in the attic. But I found myself going up the attic stairs. I walked straight over to the edge of the south turret room, and I stood looking down at a small opening in the floor. It's a couple inches wide, two or three inches long. I just stood there looking down at it, and, and, it, and it was like that voice in my head telling me again, um, look more closely. And so I got down on my knees, and, and I peered into this opening in the floor. And then I got a glimpse of a brown piece of paper. And so I reached into the opening, got a couple of fingers on the edge of this brown piece of paper, and pulled it out. To my surprise, it was an envelope. And I lifted up the flap, and inside were smaller envelopes. They were white. They were all postmarked 1948, and they were addressed to Liddell Allen Bonner. And I opened up... um, the flap of one of the white envelopes and pulled out a a letter and the salutation was dearest and it was signed love and then under the word love was the initial P. And I realized that I had found a batch of love letters written to Liddell a couple of months before her suicide. 
I jumped up and I ran downstairs and got a claw hammer, ran back upstairs and I pried up the, the floorboard. And underneath the floorboard were more letters. In total, about 80 letters, most of them from a man named Prentice Hemingway Savage. Mark sat down on the attic floor and laid the letters out in chronological order. With the sun shining bright through the attic window, he began to read. Prentice, he was a wealthy, successful businessman. He writes in, in his letters how much he, he loves her petiteness and, and how he can't keep his hands off of her. And enough, nothing terribly explicit, but enough to make it clear that he's eager for the next meeting. Prentice writes, If you should show up around any part of the country north of the Mason and Dixon line, I'll find some reason to be there too. There was just that problem of him being married. But Prentice was successful in convincing Liddell that their corresponding was okay, that their meeting somewhere was, was okay. Although from what Mark could tell, Liddell knew better. She was pretty paranoid. Now, she kept all of his letters, obviously, and she kept the letters of her friends in whom she confided about the affair. In one letter, Prentice responds, What will I do with you if you don't quit worrying about your letters? So just dismiss that from your sweet little mind, my dear. But she made Prentice promise to destroy her letters to him. In fact, he had to tear them up, and then send the fragments back to her in his envelopes when he replied. And that's why in some of the envelopes, there are these scraps of letters stuck in the corners of the insides of the envelopes that are scraps of letters that Liddell wrote to him. Prentice and Liddell get deeper and deeper into this torrid love affair. They find a way to meet in Wisconsin and then Minnesota, where they spend two blissful weeks together. Prentice writes, These last five days will live in my memory always, as the happiest ones in my entire life. I love you. Don't ever forget I'm thinking of you always. And I'm there on my knees or on the attic floor holding this letter. You know, it's really hot and I'm sweating. <laughs> no, it, it seemed unreal. I'm immersed in the time of those individuals. March and April and May of 1948. And the letters are, are elaborate, they're vivid, they're full of expressions of, of affection and of growing affection. And it's not long before Prentice starts talking about leaving his wife. He writes, I know now more than ever that you and I should work out the details we talked over. I shall do my part soon. One of the things that they've been corresponding about for months is how he's going to be in Monticello for the holidays. By Christmas, everything's going to be settled. He and Liddell will spend Christmas together. But then there's a decidedly negative turn in early December. He writes her a letter. And he complains about going to the dentist, and, and he complains about being really busy. And then he says, I can't leave my wife after all. I just don't see it happening, at least not anytime soon. And he says in the letter he doesn't know when he'll be able to write her again. Prentice signs off. 
Take good care of yourself, dear. I'm thinking, oh, I knew how the story was going to end. Liddell would never receive another letter from Prentice. So it was December 25th evening. Liddell attended her, her mother's Christmas party. She mingled with the guest. I think she was holding out some hope that Prentice would show up on Christmas, that he would surprise her. And late in the evening, when he had not shown up, she prepared herself a plate of hors d'oeuvres and a glass of punch, and she went up to the master bedroom, which was her room. And she used the, the punch and the hors d'oeuvres to mask the taste of mercury cyanide tablets. I'd been in the attic for several hours at that point. I looked up at the rafters and, and said, I'm so sorry, Liddell. People often ask whether she's still there, and she is. One day, this was in April of 2014, I was um, walking into the master bedroom. I saw my wife on the other side of the room um, in front of one of the turret windows, and her back was to me. What struck me as odd was that she's looking out the window, but she didn't have the curtain pulled back. I'm about to ask her what she's doing, and I literally had my mouth open to speak to her when she vanished. She just completely disappeared right in front of my eyes. Big thanks to Mark Spencer for having the courage to dig up those letters. And we want to send our love and gratitude to Liddell for helping Mark find them. You can find out more information about Mark and Liddell's house on our website, snapjudgment.org. Leon Morimoto rocked that original score. It was produced by Nancy Lopez. <laughs> 